This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 479. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by co-host, co-founder, co-awesome dude, Jacob Paulson. Thanks, Riley. <laughs> Got to make you sound cooler than you actually are. That was good. That was, you delivered for sure. <laughs> well, everybody, welcome to another episode. Today's topic, we're actually talking about, this This is our standard once a month industry news and gear reviews episode. And so we'll uh, share some some of the latest industry news from around the firearms and training and gun industry. And then Jacob and I have a couple of products that we'll share with you and give you our thoughts and our reviews on them. (laughs) Looking forward to uh, hearing what Jacob's going to cover with us for today. Uh, I haven't even really looked at it. Oh, okay. That'll be interesting. All right. And you don't even know what I'm doing on mine because I haven't put it in the outline yet. That's right. No idea. Uh, guys, stay tuned. I think you'll, I think you'll appreciate the products we cover today. Uh, some, some good stuff to offer for y'all. Today's podcast is sponsored and brought to you by the 2021 Guardian Conference. This is our first annual training conference that uh, we are organizing at ConcealedCarry.com. Uh, it's presented by CCW Safe, and we're so proud to have them on as a presenting sponsor of the event. Uh, and uh, also, this is closely related to our membership program, Guardian Nation, because Guardian Nation members, we have a bunch of you guys already signed up and planning on attending. And Guardian Nation members are you guys. That's that's what this is part. That's what this is all about. Is being members gives you special access to deals and training and all that. So. You guys are saving big on the tuition for the 2021 Guardian Conference. Where can you learn more about the Guardian Conference? Well, guardianconference.com. You can see our our lineup of instructors. You can see some uh, travel and accommodation-related information, what kind of gear and stuff you want to bring. Also want to point out that uh, we have some instructions up on the site now to how to ship ammunition to us so we can uh, have that r- ready for you on site for the, the for the first day of training the idea being that many of you are going to want to bring at least 800 rounds and maybe even a little bit more so you you probably aren't going to be able to to fly with that if you're traveling in by air uh, or if you just don't feel like driving it across country yourself ship your ammo to us we'll keep it safe we'll take care of it and make sure everything is delivered on time at the start of the event. Also want to point out, uh, you know, we've already got a bunch of other great instructors. We've talked about them in the past. Uh, Larry Vickers being probably the, the most well-known instructor we have on our list. I do actually want to just quickly announce, Jacob, that uh, uh, for those of you that may not have seen it yet, but uh, recently Larry Vickers announced on social media that he's been diagnosed with a form of lymphoma. Uh, he is still, at, as of this time, planning on uh, teaching at our event. All right. Uh, the event's uh, about seven months away, and he anticipates treatment to last about six months or so. 
So his hope and plan and intent is to is to still be a part of the Guardian Conference. So we're excited for that, and we wish him the absolute best. Our thoughts and prayers are with Larry during this time as he has this little bump in the road in his life and and gets treatment for for this cancer. Uh, I just was talking with him this morning and confirming some things via email, and he was saying that yep, we're we're, we're good to go as of right now, as long as things stay the course. That he feels like he'll be ready for for the uh, Guardian Conference. So super excited about that. Again, we have other great instructors: Spencer Keepers, Chuck Haggard, Matt Little, Brian Eastridge, Steve Moses, Sam Middlebrook, Brian McLaughlin, Haney McMood, Andrew Branca, myself, and and probably a few others. But also, we just uh, brought on board Todd Fossey, who's going to be providing some awesome hand to hand and combatives related training for the event as well. So super excited for this all-star cast and team of top instructors. So guys, go get signed up at guardianconference.com. Still early bird pricing right now and no guarantee as to how long that will remain in place. So take advantage of early bird pricing now, get signed up. I know some of you may have some concerns about ammo. You got seven months to find some, all right? And our, our hope and our goal is to keep Ammunition counts at a reasonable level. 800 rounds should be able to do it. If you can send 1,000 rounds, it might not be a bad idea. All right. Also, there'll be some training opportunities where ammunition is not needed as well. There'll be some seminar type uh, courses. There'll be some medical courses. Todd Fossey, again, doing some hand-to-hand and combatives type training. Uh, so, there, you know, even if you're concerned, you can only come up with 500 rounds. Well, come and shoot your 500 rounds and then fit in the remainder of your time taking advantage of some fantastic non-live fire training. You're going to want to be there. I just, I can't imagine a higher ROI. I mean, I, I get that we're all busy and, you know, a lot of us are broke and ammo is expensive, but I got to presume if you're listening to this, that you don't plan on not taking any classes or training in the entire year of 2021. He was, oh, ammo's expensive. I'm just not going to learn anything this year. And so presuming that you do plan to do something this year, you still want to learn and grow as uh, in terms of your mindset, your tactics, and your shooting skills, then I, I got to presume you're going to do something. And I cannot imagine, because I'm involved in the planning, that you could possibly find a better ROI than this event. It's, it's yep. going to be the best thing you could do with your money. And the sooner you enroll, of course, the less it'll cost. And so the higher the ROI will be. Um, but yeah, just just go do it. Just go sign up, guardianconference.com. Anyone can sign up. Any skill level is acceptable. If you know how to take a gun out of a box, put ammo in it, press the trigger a few times, remove the ammo from it and put the gun back in the box, then you have a sufficient- be safe while doing it. Yeah, be safe while doing it, right? <laughs> then you have a sufficient degree of knowledge to attend this event. And if you That's are cool. significantly more advanced than that, I assure you there will be a track, a track of, of courses available for you that will meet your uh, your 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 needs. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, awesome guys. We hope to see you at the Guardian Conference. Uh, also, today's episode brought to you by the Type Three Malfunction Round. Uh, this is a nifty little uh, training device intended to help you practice double feed malfunction clearing in live fire because it is one of the few things I've seen that actually allows you to reliably set up and experience double feed malfunctions 
in live fire. I've tried a few different things and there is at least one other product that, that also accomplishes this, this ability of setting up double feedback functions in live fire. But I actually prefer this one because this one also allows you to clear double feed malfunctions. If you're the type that likes to remove the magazine, clear the malfunction, and reinsert the same magazine into the gun, this is one where you can actually train. Like it, it the way you clear the malfunction happens and and works exactly the same way that you would expect a real live double feed to occur. So, super awesome training device. Uh, we sell them on our website, concealedcarry.com. Price is very reasonable for a package of five of them, and they'll last you a good while. All right? And if you're an instructor, these are a great tool to have. If you do any time uh, at all in your courses, teaching double feeds and malfunction clearing, or just as a private individual that just wants to get good practice on double feeds, you know, historically or, or, or I guess traditionally, we set this up in dry fire right? Where we set up a double feed and we practice clearing that. And dry fire is still a perfect place to learn how to properly and safely clear a double feed and to get good repetitions with it. But the type three malfunction round allows you to do it in live fire and to validate the practice and the training and the time you're putting in, in your, in your dry fire practice. So guys, check out the type three malfunction round by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash T3MR. That stands for the Type 3 Malfunction Round. Concealedcarry.com forward slash T3MR. So, uh, today's episode, as I mentioned, is our news and gear reviews episode. So, we are going to get into our first story now. This first one's kind of interesting because it's actually an op-ed piece from the Las Vegas Sun. And it's written by an author by the name of Brian Sexton. He describes himself, at least at one time, as a gun nut. The whole point of his article is to talk about the, and he calls it the dangerous evolution of the gun nut. He basically starts off by explaining how, in his younger years, he would have been described as a gun nut. And a gun nut back then, we're talking probably 30, 40 years ago, a gun nut back then, in his mind, was somebody that just happened to own a number of guns and they, th- those guns typically ranged from lever action Winchester rifles to shotguns and some revolvers, maybe some other handguns or rifles. But uh, he, he, his argument in this op-ed is that the definition of gun net has changed quite a bit. It's changed from where gun owners spent their time talking about the smooth, sleek lines of, of, wood stocks and and fine checkering and that sort of thing which by the way i want to be clear i appreciate that stuff all right i love beautiful guns and i have a few in my collection that i would describe as being just for for almost you know basically for looks they're safe queen so to speak right but he says that in today's world gun nut has turned into someone that is constantly preaching uh, uh, Molen Labe and come and take them, you know, slogans all over their, their, their bags, their gear, their cars. Uh, you know, they, they're proponents of, uh, and, and owners of AR 15s and plastic semi-automatic pistols. And, you know, and, and the focus is more on, on this, on second amendment rights, right. As far as like it being an absolute right, 
an absolute fundamental right. Uh, self-defense and tactical training is more the thing. So it's kind of an interesting article because, and I say interesting because I don't agree with it. Okay. I mean, he may be right to some degree in that the definition of certain things has changed. That's absolutely true. The culture has changed. That's certainly true. Uh, 1960s, 1970s, even 1980s gun culture was very different and it was much more hunting focused and recreational focused than it is today. And that's for a, a, a whole host and variety of reasons, many of which I think are absolutely valid reasons. Jacob, I've been going back through um, First Freedom, the book by David Harsani. Uh, which you, you actually, you recommended and bought and gifted to the company employees that year for Christmas as a Christmas gift. Uh, I read it and I'm going through it again because I was like, you know, it came up in a conversation in the last week and I was like, you know what? I'm going to read that book again. It's a good book. And, he, and his description of how we ended up to where we are is pretty, I think, on point and, and provide some context to this Brian Sexton fellow writing this op-ed who seems a little bit of confused. This, this guy seems to be a little bit confused, right? With, you know, this is where we were. This is where we are now. How do we get there? And David's book, First Freedom, David Harsanyi covers and talks about how threat to the Second Amendment was not on people's minds really so much up through the 60s, 70s. Well, it kind of started in the 60s and the 70s a little bit, but even up through the 80s, didn't really start taking off. And then the passing of the assault weapons ban and the Brady Bill in the 90s, and that start sort of began this, this ushering in of a new focus amongst gun owners and gun lovers and proponents of the Second Amendment. People actually realizing that, wait a minute, they really are coming after our guns. Right? Why? Why was that not as much a concern back when the NFA was passed or the Gun Control Act was passed? Because honestly, a lot of gun owners, even then, were on board with those laws being passed, and 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 they saw them as like, yep, that makes sense. Yep, that's that's what we're gonna do. They didn't see it as where the intent behind those pushing those laws was to try to take guns and really further restrict rights. It's really a more modern thing in the last 20 or 30 years that certain individuals and politicians have made it very clear. And the current presidential administration is making it further clear that they really do want to take away guns. Your thoughts. Uh, yeah, all that, not- all, all that sounds true. So I think that this op-ed piece is interesting. The co- For one, we're biased. Like we are definitely the wrong Absolutely. people to ask, right? Like we, we are concealedcarry.com. My, my EDC 365, entire, as it says I, in my shirt. I, I mean, f- since day one, I've made no, no, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I've not hidden the fact that I am not a gun guy. I don't know history of guns. I don't own old guns. I can't sit here and talk to you about the whatever that conquered the West. Like, I really don't care. I don't hunt. I mean, I'm not against hunting, but I don't hunt. My entire uh, world of of firearms revolves around self-defense. That's it always has. It always I won't say it always will, but it currently does. That's just that's that's my experience 
around firearms. It's the only context around which I discuss firearms and the only context around which I, I pretend to have any degree of, of uh, expertise. Um, so, so first, yeah, I just to acknowledge like I'm super biased because yes, just I certainly is my perspective that firearms are first and foremost beyond before everything else, they are a defensive tool before they are a tool for acquiring food, before they are a tool for uh, enjoyment and recreation, before they are a tool for financial uh, asset uh, acquisition, before they are a tool for anything else. To me, they are a tool for defensive purposes. And, and I recognize that's not true for everybody. Uh, there are people out there who own firearms purely for collective sake. They don't shoot them. They hardly even know how to operate them. It's just a cool thing to collect and to trade and to own. Um, there are people out there who are only hunters. They just hunt. That's all they do. They love hunting, and that's that's fine too. So, like, I, I, I certainly accept that there's different, you know, groups or or reasons to own firearms. It's just not. It's, it's all outside of my context. In my world, the firearm is solely a defensive asset. Um, you know, which is why I only own one shotgun. You know, and the argument could be made that a good defensive shooter like me should own a bunch of shotguns, but I don't. I only own one. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't own five hunting rifles. I own two, and and they never have shot an animal before. So I'm just not that guy. So I think that said, with all that disclaimer aside. The, the industry has changed. You look at industry trade shows like SHOT Show, where I, I've only been going to SHOT Show for a limited time relatively, right? Like five or six years or something. I don't even know. But even in the in the five to six years that I've been going to SHOT Show, I've seen a significant change. And I, and I think anyone would agree with this. You look at the products that are being uh, released by, by the major players. You look at the new companies that are coming into the marketplace in the firearm industry. And there clearly is a shift toward uh, defensive tools, the, the firearm as a defensive product, and away from what was previously extremely dominated by law enforcement and military, now to an industry where the civilian marketplace is very significant. And if you're ignoring it, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. And and and, and when we're talking about the more defensive related tools, right? Mm -hmm. So I think like body armor, you know, 20 years ago, do you think there was a civilian market for body armor? I, I, I doubt it. I doubt there was much at all, but today there is. Today there's companies who focus solely on selling body armor to non-LEO military uh, you know, uh, consumers. So yes, the industry has definitely shifted. All that is true. Um, and, and is the political statement of firearm ownership now relevant where it never was before? Absolutely. And I think Riley, you summed that up well enough. I don't need to rehash it. Uh, it's just times of Times have changed. No one was concerned about their gun rights, gun rights being restricted in, in 1950. Yeah. We don't have that many federal gun laws. You know, there's like three or something. You know, 1934, the NFA, no one saw that as restricting gun rights. 1968, Gun Control Act, no one was concerned about that. 1986, Firearm Owner Protection Act, the words themselves kind of speak to the fact that, that no one thought that that was going to restrict their rights. Uh, but the Brady Bill and now the more recent conversations, when you have politicians saying, I want Australian style gun control, I want every firearm registered, licensed, serialized and, and, you know, and taxed. And and licenses that, to buy ammo and right, so on and so forth. That, yep. that changes the conversation. So now uh, does gun ownership become a political statement? I suppose to, to many people it does. Um, but 
I have to ask, is is any of that bad? I mean, that's the challenge with this op-ed is he point he paints it as a a negative picture that the gun nut to, of today has gone from being the the hunter or the enthusiast to being someone who's concerned about having to defend themselves. Uh, and, and is that true? I suppose maybe to, at least to some degree, it's definitely true, but is that bad? I don't see it as bad. Mm-hmm. I don't see an issue with that at all. I don't, I don't see any concern with people wanting to defend themselves uh, at all. It, it, I mean, the statistics would suggest that the more that that becomes the focus of our industry, the more people are successful in defending themselves against violent attacks. Is there any doubt in, whatsoever that violent crime is, it exists and that it's, it's there and it's prevalent? Uh, no, it's that that's definitely happening. So I don't, I just don't see any negative connotation to that uh, at, at all. I just, I don't fully disagree with the premise. I just disagree that it's a problem. Yeah. And, and that is the argument he's trying to make is that he sees the, the gun nuts of today in his mind are quite extreme. And, uh, uh, and, and, and he feels like that, that actually in itself poses a danger to gun rights because the other side will try to paint us as dangerous people. And, and, Therefore, there's justification to restrict gun rights. Uh, Here's why I wanted to talk about this today. We need to move on, obviously, to other things. But why I wanted to talk about this was because it's important, I think, for us to recognize that across the spectrum of freedom-loving, gun-owning, Second Amendment-believing Americans, it's a wide spectrum of people. You have people all the way from the far right to center and even a little bit into the left, right? Uh, plenty of Democrats, including those that we know that follow this podcast, that that are uh, that that own guns and have concealed carry permits, and you know believe in the Second Amendment just just like we do, right? Um, and so I know that for some people that's hard to fathom. Well, how, how can that be that, that we, we view th- certain things as being incompatible, but that's not the case at all. And uh, I would just point out, and I, this is what I would want to tell this author, Brian Sexton of this piece that, Hey, here's the thing, dude, is that you see that over the last hundred years, there's been three major federal, actually, sorry, more like four, really five major federal um, legislative you know, bills that have passed um, that have restricted gun rights, right? And it used to be something that was more talked about behind closed doors, and now it's talked about very openly. Things like ammunition taxes and licenses required for purchasing ammunition affect even people like you, Brian Sexton, the hunters, the recreational shooters, because you're going to pay for that as well, all right? And it's, a, it's clear that, hey, if they're willing to go this far to take certain whole classes of firearms away from, the, from us, then who's to say that it's not going to come and, and knock on your door before long, all right? Where some of the guns that you own, Brian, as a more, I don't know, laid back uh, gun owner, who, who's to say that they're not going to come for some of the stuff you own? Right, and everything is going to get more expensive. Uh, ammunition, even the cost of guns, is going to go up, as is going to be talked about in an upcoming story here in just a moment. Unless you have anything else to add, Jacob, uh, you want to move on to the next story? Oh, just that extremism is is not just an issue 
in gun right world, it's an issue, right. generally speaking, in, in our culture and the inability to find common ground and compromise uh, and find out what we agree on. That that's a that's a broad issue. It certainly is yep. prevalent in gun rights discussions, but it's it's not unique to us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and where we can, I think as as gun owning Americans, we should do everything we can to try to work together because we're far stronger all together than we are dividing up amongst ourselves. Next story, the Washington Free Beacon, uh, freebeacon.com has a story called Disgruntled NRA Donors Push to Oust LaPierre. Class action plaintiff David Dallaquila says he will ask for a bankruptcy trustee to run the gun group. This is a really interesting play with regards to the NRA. Uh, Jacob, do you want to walk us through this at all? Well, I wish I was a lawyer, so I understood it better. But I think that the, the like thing you need to understand in order to follow the story is that apparently, if I'm if I got this right, uh, because the NRA has recently filed bankruptcy, um, it is within the power of the bankruptcy court to, at least temporarily, while while the bankruptcy proceedings are are taking place, it is within the power of the court to remove company leadership and replace it with. Uh, with trustees with with a trustee with somebody appointed by the court Mm -hmm. to do stuff to To oversee the running of that company and getting it back on track as part of the bankruptcy proceedings yep it is within the power of the court to do that and so this uh, lawsuit or whatever the right word is is basically NRA members saying hey we were we're requesting very proactively that the court do that that the court appoint somebody to run this business uh, right now, while while it's in bankruptcy, and 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 this may be a way to uh, expose issues or whatever you know things, so that we can um, get to you know get get to the bottom of things that we think might be happening and and disrupt uh, you know the 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 leadership that's been sitting there for so long. Yeah, yeah. This, like I said, this is a really interesting play. So, so Mr. Del Aquila has been in the news before, uh, really coming after the NRA, even suing the NRA in the past, and some of that has gone nowhere. Uh, his previous actions, uh, he he's really tried to build a coalition of fellow NRA members, and, and particularly those that have some influence to to try to affect change in the leadership at the NRA and the way the NRA has been run in recent years. And and to that point, yes, I, I acknowledge and I recognize uh, many faults uh, within the organization and the leadership of the NRA. And I've talked before on the podcast about changes being made there, and I would support those changes, uh, provided they, they move in the right direction and not make things worse. Uh, that's always d- somewhat difficult to uh, to determine, you know, uh, what is actually going to be better or not. But But one thing I can tell you is that it's well recognized, at least in the circles I run in, that Wayne LaPierre is is not favored anymore. Okay, uh, that that we'd like to see that position changed, um, and, and others, but especially, uh, you know, he's a big driver and he's the face of the organization. Uh, and it, it's so difficult in an organization like the NRA to change leadership, and I believe that was structured intentionally. Because the way that it happens and the fact that the board of directors is a 76-person board is just insane, okay? 
like on the one hand, you'd think you'd get good representation. On the other hand, it makes getting a coalition of board of directors together on, on things so that we can actually move the organization in positive directions. It sort of sets up, sets the stage for ensuring the status quo remains a status quo for a long time. And clearly the status quo is not working and has been working because the NRA is in trouble financially. The NRA is tr- in trouble in terms of its public image, not, not only in the anti-gun or the general public, but even within the pro-gun and NRA member public. So there's a lot of problems. And I think this is a really interesting legal maneuver as David uh, Delaquila is pushing the court to establish a trustee to oversee the result, the resolution of these bankruptcy proceedings, which as it notes in the article would, would mean removing folks like Wayne LaPierre and some of the other top leadership in the NRA. So hopefully that would be done. Like, again, hopefully that would be a positive thing, right? Um, And it's important that the NRA discharges of debts and gets itself back on track and moves itself out the heck out of New York city <laughs> to somewhere more favorable. Uh, but uh, the other big thing that I've noticed here, Jacob, is that David Delakia w- has been uh, listed as one of the creditors in this bankruptcy. And that's significant actually, because it gives him, yeah, it, 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 it gives him st- very definitive standing in, in these, uh, these court proceedings. So um, that that's, that's more than what has been accomplished in the past where he sued and, and essentially courts have typically been like, well, you don't have grounds here or, or, you know, things have been just tossed out. So this is an interesting play because the creditors do play a role in, especially in large bankruptcies like this, because it's all about resolving things with creditors. Well, here he's been listed as a creditor and that gives him a little bit more, influence in how this proceeds. Yeah. I, I, I don't know anyone personally. Like I, I don't, I've not had a conversation with a human in the last three years who feels like Wayne LaPierre should not be ousted. <laughs> like he should definitely stay in power. So, so I think the only person who feels that way is Wayne. Yep. And, and his cronies, which yeah. there are a number of them. Sure. Sure. Yep. But they and don't I say everything people. I said as, as a, NRA life member so that it's clear like I have skin in this game all right I'm a voting life member uh amaland.com reports new push for micro stamping proponents claim technology has arrived Jacob what do we got going on here so the concept of micro stamping is this idea that a firing pin in a gun is individual that it is unique and that when it strikes the primer on the back of the shell casing on the back of the round uh, that it stamps that uh, primer cup, the, the the shell casing, in a way that's also unique, that allows uh, law enforcement or whoever else, I suppose, possesses the technology and database to pick up that shell casing, look at the unique uh, way it's been impacted, and then use that to reference the gun it came from. Um, and and so the the you know this is something that's been spoken about for some time, and you know it was thought that maybe the tech wasn't there yet, and now people are saying no, the tech is there. We just need to mandate this. So let's talk about the objective. If you are 
proponent of microstamping, then the object, the objective at, on the surface level, like we could go deeper, right? But the very surface level objective is conceptually the idea that we want to be able to always know what gun fired something, to always be able to trace a gun. And, and specifically, hopefully, thinking about uh, criminal situations, right? We, we're on a crime scene, we're picking up an empty shell casing, and we're saying, what gun did this come from? Uh, whereas today, that's relatively challenging, especially if you don't possess the original gun. It's really hard to do any testing to, to verify that a specific uh, shell casing, a, a specific round was fired from a, a specific gun. Uh, but this would perhaps give the opportunity to trace uh, back to the actual gun that was used in the crime. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a couple of thoughts, though. This inherently requires that there be a database of guns, right? Nope. I mean, that it's, it's conceptually required, which means you have to change U.S. federal law. Uh, the Fire Motor Protection Act makes mm -hmm. that illegal for there to be a list of firearms uh, and 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 people who own them <laughs> like that's not an option. Um, so so that that's that's complicated uh, to some degree. I think I suppose you don't technically have to change that law. They could just have a database of they could match like a serial number to a firing pin thing uh, to a, to a micro stamp, but that that still doesn't bring them to an owner unless they have some sort of registration. And so it seems like it's one step away from firearm registration because otherwise it's a pretty pointless, worthless thing. Like what good does microstamping do you at all if you don't have a database of the guns and their owners who have them? Uh, so I think that that's, that's the obvious like second step here. This That's the slippery slope, a slope requirement in order for this to be functional. But the big concern is in my mind, having read this article, um, it's completely un untested. Like they say the technology's arrived. And I said, um, you, a gun has never been sold in America ever with a, with a microstamping capable firing pin. It doesn't exist. So your conceptual whatever is irrelevant because there's no proof of concept. Yeah, and you know, actually Mark on uh, Facebook here comments that, you know, a, a fair point. There is a federal law that prevents a federal database uh, for being established currently under the FOPA, but uh, uh, but there are states that have gun registration, and certainly it's within the realm of possibilities that uh, that that's the way that we get to gun registration on a more on a wider national scale as more and more states implementing things that, like that. That's be pretty wrought with lawsuits because the way the law is is written in FOPA, it prevents the creation of a database by any jurisdiction. So states that currently have the registration system, they're effectively grandfathered in. They already were doing it before 1986, right? That's a short list. We're talking Hawaii, Massachusetts, Maryland, California, uh, New York City. I think that's the list. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that's it. So we're talking about like five jurisdictions or less who all were doing it prior to 1986. So no, no jurisdiction to date since the law has passed has dared to create such a registration system. And if they did, they'd probably lose that lawsuit because the law is pretty clear that's the creation of such that, that is a no-go. So I, just, I want well, to be clear of that. We have in our own state here, in, in your backyard practically, the city... That's a, that's a marijuana conversation. <laughs> right? That has established a registration of AR-15s. Well, that's complicated. Uh, to suggest <laughs> it's a registration, what I, I would say is complicated. Um, what yeah. you you could do is you uh, you you uh, you get a certificate to show you owned it before a law went into effect, um, but those certificates 
I, I mean, I, I didn't go check. I don't know if they're taking serial numbers or not, but I think that the, to me, marijuana is the more like apt uh, comparison issue here, right? If you have a large number of states in this country, including ours, where you and I reside, ignoring federal law and doing what they want, then, you know, there's a precedent there for mm -hmm. other instances of ignoring the federal law. We just haven't seen any state attempt to do it yet yep. relative yep. to firearm registration. Although I promise you there are those that would like to, right? So Yeah, and we have a house bill right now that's been written and drafted proposing to get rid of that article in the, in mm -hmm. the Fire Motor Protection Act and to establish a licensing and registration system. Yep. So it's it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Yep. Uh, the micro stamping thing. So you you already covered it pretty well, and we know that it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of problems associated with requiring micro stamping. Uh, one of the things that comes comes first to mind for me, Jacob, is is obviously the cost, and uh, it even talks about in this article. But the NSF NSSF had a report estimating that. Requiring micro stamping would increase the cost of a firearm by two hundred dollars per per firearm. Um, I, I don't know that how reasonable it is, but it's probably not far off, right? No, it sounds very about you got to manufacture a firing pin that then, through the use of some kind of micro manufacturing uh, technique, you're able to cut into or form the shape of these unique serial numbers on that, on the tip of that firing pin. Uh, that sounds like a very expensive thing. Like I'm sure it can be done technologically wise, right? That's what this article is talking about is that the technology is here, you know, that it has arrived. Um, doesn't mean it's going to be inexpensive, right? And even well, just the, just the changing the tolerances of manufacturing right now, there's, there's a relative amount of wiggle room relative to the way you make a firing pin and ensure that it's going to work with all the different types of ammo. This would really tighten those tolerances to a degree that, that a lot of guns probably today would not work. They'd have to re-engineered. That's true. I think so as well. And, and also, I mean, just getting down to firing pins are, are a part of the firearm that eventually has to be replaced. And anyone could manufacture with very limited knowledge and tools. Yes. Yeah. So. And, and, and so, but you know, if you're, if, if, if citizens want to be law abiding, right. And they, they think, well, my firing pin is now broken or it's worn out. So I need to replace it. Uh, so they want to go the, the correct route of going to the manufacturer and getting a, a new one, a duplicate or whatever made like that sounds like a massive sourcing and, and uh, uh, logistics issue. A huge challenge, right? That would result in huge backlogs uh, of of just trying to get certain critical parts because they got to be manufactured, uh, you know, at a very high cost. Uh, so that's a challenge. The cost of the firearm itself going up it just further hurts those that are dis already more disadvantaged in in our society. Those that are are poor. Those that you know, which which targets uh, uh, minorities at a much higher rate. People right? who need the guns more than anybody else, probably. Arguably. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just fraught with all kinds of issues. And but, you, but the you real know issue, what they want to push for. The real issue is that it doesn't actually achieve anything, right? Because yep. loyal listeners of the podcast know that I am not opposed to gun reg, uh, regulation. It just has to pass some criteria. And my criteria is that the benefits have to outweigh the downside. 
And in, in this case, it just doesn't pass. Uh, and by the way, almost zero gun control legislation being proposed has ever passed my criteria since I've been paying attention. Um, but this definitely doesn't pass because there's just no benefit. That's the problem is like, if this would reduce violent crime in some dramatic way, we'd be all about it. We'd be like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, like, let's figure out how to do it at scale and a good cause. But it's not going to have any any positive effect whatsoever on anything. So I don't know why any of us care. Like, it, it, it just, I don't. It, that's the problem is that the benefit that they purport that will exist is foolish and ridiculous. Shall not be infringed, Jacob. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all for reasonable regulation that does not reduce my rights more than is, is necessary to achieve a, a dramatic re- reduction of violent crime. I really am open to it guys. Like I know that the, there, there's hate mail coming on that one. But but the problem is that we keep seeing proposals that do not do not reduce violent crime and do overly restrict my rights, and so so it's it's a bit it's you know I just I can't put my stamp of approval on anything, but I am conceptually theoretically open to something that would restrict my gun rights, if if the benefit outweighed the downside, right? If it would dramatically decrease violent crime. I'm open. I'm open to the conversation, but this won't. No, it won't. Absolutely won't. Okay. Moving on to MLN.com. Also reporting modern sporting rifles as bear stoppers. They worked in every recorded incident thus far. Uh, Another really interesting piece from Dean Weingarten. We've, We've uh, covered some of his uh, work in the past, uh, particularly as relates to use of guns in defense against bears. Uh, We've talked a couple of times actually about some of his uh, studies, if you will, of handguns, common handguns, and of a variety of calibers being used successfully and pretty overwhelmingly successfully, frankly, against bear attacks uh we're talking your 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 standard calibers there was even some instances of 22s being used successfully 38 special 380 auto 9 millimeter 40 45 357 magnum were all examples uh that dean covered in some of his previous articles uh and i'm not saying by the way that it's a good idea to pack around a 22 long rifle (laughs) and i seem to recall it was like three out of five instances in that case or something like that. There was definitely some failures, but, uh, but, uh, anyway, so now he's highlighting, uh, in this article, modern sporting rifles or modern semi-automatic, uh, AR, typically AR style or AK style sporting rifles. Uh, so by this, these typically are rifles of a caliber that is generally not used or considered to be adequate for the use of hunting of large game animals. But what's curious is what, and what we're looking at with this is, is there a place for them in terms of defense against dangerous, large animal attacks? And granted, it's only a sample size of four, but it is pretty interesting. So he goes over four different incidents, one of them involving a polar bear. And I don't know how much, how many of you know much about, say, the different types of bears and kind of like their size and what they're capable of, but polar bears are huge. Grizzly bears are also huge, but polar bears are bigger than grizzly bears typically. Uh, black bears, they're like the they're the little puppies of 
you know, of, of bear world, you know, like the, they're small compared to typically compared to especially animals like polar bears. Uh, but regardless, uh, bears are bears and, and, and they do occasionally pose a legitimate threat to, uh, to, to us humans. So in 2008, a polar bear in Alaska was stopped with uh, a 223 AR. Uh, it's actually an interesting story because the, the, the gentleman talks about how he had to shoot from the hip because that's how fast this attack happened. Uh, he then the bear stopped about 10 feet away from him. Uh, he, he said he just didn't, if he had tried to get the gun up to his shoulder, there wouldn't have been time to get the hits he needed to on that bear to stop it. Um, I might debate a little bit about that. I think that, uh, if you're really skilled that shooting from the hip versus just getting up to the shoulder is probably not that big a difference as far as getting that mounted in the shoulder and using your sights. But fact is the man got it, got the job done and he got it, he got it done, meaning stopped a polar bear with seven or eight shots from his AR style rifle. Pretty impressive. In 2013, uh, an Alaskan hunter uh, stopped a grizzly with an AK-74. An AK-74 is the little brother of the AK-47, meaning it shoots a essentially what is a 22 caliber uh, round, uh, 5.45 millimeter, slightly smaller in diameter than a 223. Uh, he stopped with 13 shots this grizzly bear attack in Alaska. And then two more incidents involving black bears, where one was an AR-15, a man using it to stop a bear who was uh, posing a threat to his dog. And another incident in Nevada, just south of Reno. And this was just last year in June of 2020. Another AR-15, although in this case chambered in 6.8 SPC, but he stopped a large black bear that was charging towards him. So pretty interesting, uh, just more interesting, I guess, data points, you know, t- looking at guns that are more typically associated with personal defense use against humans, but being expanding that perspective to the use against deadly critters as well. So by this, I mean, Dean's fantastic work studying handgun use against bears as well as modern sporting rifles yeah dean's got this thing with bears so yeah i I don't have a lot to add except that i think that rate of fire on a semi-automatic is a a significant contributing factor he doesn't give any data here about how many shots on average or anything like that and also it's still a pretty small sample size right i think we're looking like four incidents Mm -hmm. um, that he has access to that he can find that he you know has been able to research uh, which are you know are, are a carbine, a modern sporting rifle, or whatever heck we call it, it, has been used against a bear. So all very good and interesting. Uh, I think velocity and rate of fire fire are pretty significant contributing factors. But uh, yeah, cool. I mean, it comes down to all that matters in terms of affecting a stoppage against a living creature is a projectile, an object that penetrates deeply enough to disrupt critical organs and the essentially the flow of blood, right? Like you do that, you're going to get a stop uh, or, or taking out the central nervous system, of course. Uh, 223 certainly has the potential of penetrating enough, uh, depending on what the rounds are that are being used. But, you know, every, there's always variables. 
certainly has the capability. Just as we've talked about pre- Dean's previous articles with things like you know, 38 specials and nine millimeters people, guns that people don't normally look at and go, yeah, that'll get the job done against a bear. Hey, if you place the shots appropriately and those rounds can penetrate deeply enough into the meaty tissues of that bear and get to where, um, where the heart is or where the brain is, then that's all you need. All right. It certainly has changed my perspective a little bit. I, I used to probably make more of a effort, Jacob, to take larger caliber guns with me into the backcountry, and um, I still do that occasionally. But I, I don't. But there's also ex- at times too where I just take a nine millimeter, and I I know I've got I got sixteen rounds in the gun, and I got a twenty one, you know, backup magazine uh, round twenty one round backup mag. Uh, you know what? I can put a lot of rounds on on a on a on an animal very quickly. So you also make a lot of noise, which, which tends to be pretty which, effective. Yeah, exactly. That, that could be too. Turning now to guns.com reporting that Sig Sauer has recently completed delivery of the next generation infantry squad weapons to the U S army. So the army has been working on this um, procurement of, and, and things have been, worked on many times before the idea being that we're still using an M16 M4 based platform in the U S military It dates back to the sixties. And so the idea is that, Hey, you know what? It's time to phase that out and bring in the the next generation. Um, You know, they keep going back to the M4, you know, the current uh, number one platform in use by the U S military because you know what it works and you know when the, when they start weighing all the factors you you talked about cost uh benefit analysis jacob about you know legislation uh, you know they have to take into account well yeah we might want a larger caliber round for instance but then there's all these other things that that have to change because of that uh, and, and also downsides including well we can't carry as much ammunition with us, you know, cause it now that ammunition weighs more and things of that nature. Some really interesting solutions being uh, proposed by three companies that are still in the running for this, what could be a very large contract uh, that is expected to be. And I don't know if this is still on track because of COVID and everything, but expected in 2022 that they may be uh, finalizing this procurement. And what it is, is basically looking at a new uh, carbine-sized rifle platform for U.S. troops, but also a light machine gun, all right? Uh, kind of the idea of being to, the intent being to replace the M249. The M249 and the M16 M4 being chambered in 223, and these new uh, uh, guns are, are, are going to be in a 6.8 uh, cal- or millimeter um chambering all right sig has devised a whole new round of their own uh 6.8 millimeter round uses a hybrid case that allows them to uh, get some some weight savings in that round but also allow it to have very high pressures and very high velocity to maximize its effectiveness in terms of performance uh, you know terminal and external ballistic performance 
Uh, so the, the new 6.8 by 51 SIG hybrid ammunition looks pretty interesting, pretty promising. Uh, this is kind of uh, what where the 277 Fury round, that's a civilian equivalent of this, sort of where that's come from, and uh, um, which is a very impressive round, ballistically speaking. So we're talking about going to a little bit bigger caliber and a different platform of guns, rifles, um, that uh, still function very similarly, right? That's one big thing they want. They don't want to change. They don't want to change the standard, you know, manual of operations, if you will, of of what the our, our U.S. you know military men and women are are used to, right? So basically, we've standardized the location of that safety selector. Um, we've standardized location of the mag release, and on these new guns, these will be ambidextrous as well. So mag release both sides. Uh, you're, you're able to operate the bolt and everything, you know, ambidextrously, uh, safety selector, all that. So anyway, point is SIG has delivered their submission to, of prototypes essentially to the U.S. Army that now will be used in the final phases of testing and evaluation to then determine, is it going to be SIG? Is it going to be, I think, Textron or something is the other company? And then General Dynamics, I think, is the other one that's involved. Yeah, I don't have much to add, except that you know, Six Hour is building on some momentum with their previous military contract, and that they do have an advantage in that they can uh, bid on and complete an RFP, not only with a firearm, but also with their own ammunition, that they are a significant um, high-resource mm-hmm. you know, uh, manufacturer of ammunition gives them a, a leg up. Yeah, their, their submission, by the way, is, I mean, and that this is truly what is unique about SIG in this regard, is not only the rifle, and ammunition, but also optics. They're able to deliver and provide optics and suppressors. And so I believe suppress new suppressors is a part of this procurement as well. So pretty interesting, you know, that SIG is able to completely do this on their own. Uh, and meanwhile, the other companies involved in this uh, procurement process are, are, are partnerships, you know, that are, you know, companies that are, joining together like Winchester is working together with some of these other companies to provide the ammunition and so on and so forth. So anyway, pretty, pretty uh, a unique position that SIG has put themselves in, but that's something they've worked themselves towards. They've been working on it for a good number of years now to be, remember their tagline a few years back was complete systems provider, implying that they could make everything that you would need for a weapon system. And they truly do. Uh, on another art- article from guns.com. Uh, oh wait, hang on. Nope. I got an extra thing in there. Okay. So that brings us, to, we were just talking about Sig Sauer. We're going to talk some more about Sig Sauer. Jacob, why don't you give us the overview of this issue in Canada, the Canadian special forces and their issued P three twenties being withdrawn. All right. So there's some drama a little while ago. I don't remember the dates or the timelines. This is pretty recent, you know, in the last month or two where a uh, member of the Canada's special operations force command. Okay. uh, Has a misfire uh, of a, with a P320. And and here's the quote from, from, from the Canadian special forces people. They said one member sustained a minor gunshot injury during the incident was treated and released the same day and was returned to duty. Immediate actions were followed, including quarantining the weapon and the ammunition in accordance with Canadian Armed Forces standard operating procedures. 
Investigation is ongoing to determine the cause of the incident. So naturally, when something like this happens, it's going to create a bunch of a media storm, right? So people are freaking out like, oh my gosh, is this gun safe or not? And it it doesn't help Sig Sauer's uh, case, right? It doesn't help the, the media situation, the PR of the thing. When several years ago in 2017, um, there was a volunteer voluntary upgrade issued for the P320s. That there there was a, a I won't they wouldn't use the word issue, right? That there was a a potential um, you know less than optimal thing going on with the P320s, and so they you know they changed the way they were manufacturing them and gave existing uh, owners of that of that firearm the opportunity to get a voluntary upgrade to the trigger uh, because it was conceivable if dropped at the right angle with the right amount of force that it could discharge without you know someone physically uh, pressing the trigger to the rear. So it would be natural, right? That if you hear that some special forces operator dude has had a misfire with this particular gun, that you would jump to that conclusion that either he's not operating the newest and greatest version and or that, uh, you know, the, the, the issues are not resolved, right? That the drama continues on. Uh, but uh, it turns out, you know, even though the Canadian Special Forces, they don't want to give us any details. They just, we got the ongoing investigation drama. Sig Sauer did issue a statement, and I think it's pretty um, specific and comprehensive. And uh, shall I read it, Riley? Sure, why not? So here's what Sig Sauer says. Sig Sauer is working with Canadian Special Operations Forces Command to resolve an incident involving the unintended discharge of a P320. An inaccurate and incomplete report of this incident was recently published in the Canadian media that called into question the safety of the P320. While this incident occurred months ago, this erroneous media report is driven by multiple sources, including our competitors, name calling, and (laughs) coincides with the imminent release of other Canadian military and law enforcement tenders, indicating the timing of its release as an attempt to improperly influence the procurements. The firearm involved has been extensively tested by Sig Sauer, and it has been determined to be safe. The investigation revealed, this is the key, the use of an incorrect holster not designed for a P320. The use of a modified P226 holster created an unsafe condition by allowing a foreign object to enter the holster, causing the unintended discharge. The Sig Sauer P320 is among the most rigorously vetted pistols in the market, the P20, and then we just go on to talk about how it's great and awesome and tested Mm -hmm. It's all the standards. So I think there's there's two takeaways here. One is uh, six hours basically calling out the media who's, you know, propagating or pushing forward the, the rumors that are not based on evidence and fact. And they're they're straight up saying that some of their competitors are at least to some degree involved in, in the slander. And they're very specifically saying, well, you know, if you use our gun with the wrong holster, you might have that kind of an issue. And since the Canadian Special Forces, when they switched the P320, they were switching from the P226. And so at least one of them, maybe this is more widespread, at least one of them, uh, instead of getting a new holster, just modified their 226 holster to accommodate the P320. And that was done in a way that was unsafe and left the trigger guard to some degree exposed such that an a foreign object could enter the trigger guard and in the reholstering of the gun cause the trigger to be depressed. Yep. Yep. I've had this, con- this very conversation with a couple of people over the last few weeks since this uh, revealed itself. Uh, a lot of people bagging on Sig Sauer and saying, you know, basically 
dragging up this, you know, the, the old story of, well, you know, they've had a problem. They've always had a problem. They continue to have a problem. And I said, I can only see this being a couple, couple of things. Number one, they somehow still had guns that were unupgraded. They were not upgraded yet, meaning they had not. These were guns that did not have the latest, greatest, you know, trigger installed in them. Right. But I thought that was probably unlikely, especially for a major, you know, this is the Canadian special operations, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Canadian special operations forces command, right? Like, like how would they have 400 SIG pistols that aren't up to snuff in terms of they, you know, they're not up to the current spec. So that seemed a little odd. The other thing was somebody's trying to cover for themselves. They made a mistake and it was just, you know, the gun and the manufacturer just an easy scapegoat to say, because because of problems that have been in the past, well, it must have been the gun, right? And in this case, it's kind of that, really. That it, it, Frankly, it's a bit negligent if they're using modified P226 holsters to try to fit their P320 pistols in. Like, really? What? Like, that's never that's never a good idea to try to use holsters that are designed for other guns, even though the 226 and the 320 might be similar they're not, by the way. I know that for a fact, but they are kind of similar. <laughs> it really depends on what the holster is. They're about as similar as a Glock and a P320. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> if we're talking similar, like they're both semi-automatic handguns. Proportionally, like slide to frame and all that is kind of close in the width, but there's a lot of distinct differences even then. So, um, and I said something to this effect, I think maybe even to our, our internal team, like, it could have been something holster related and hey you know if you have an improper holster it's not it's in, it's conceivable that something makes its way through the opening at holster and gets a hold of that trigger uh it kind of sounds like something like that is what happened here so yeah, there's a good uh, lesson there for us for us non canadian special forces operation command people um you know that we should be using good good gear that's designed for the gun but also that even sometimes with optimal gear we've seen incidents happen like this because the user wasn't paying attention when they reholstered the gun mm -hmm. because the jacket or the pole string or the shirt or the whatever got caught in the whatever when so you know there's it's just a good healthy reminder to all of us that let's use appropriate equipment but let's also be cautious spe specifically when reholstering that tends to be uh, a commonality we see in these incidents yep exactly right uh, now, granted, it's expected that SIG would uh, provide a statement that is worded in such a way to benefit them as much as possible, right? Uh, but uh, to me, it sounds like it's pretty reasonable what the explanation uh, that has been provided. And I'll say this much, um, being very, very intimately familiar with the P320 platform, as it is the gun that I carry and shoot the most of, it's one that I have torn down completely to an armor's level numerous times i'm familiar with the new new wish now uh upgrade trigger system and how that operates and i'll just say this much i cannot conceive how a gun in a proper holster a p320 in a proper holster would just suddenly and magically discharge itself there's like you have a better chance of winning the powerball like, and I'm dead serious about that. There's so many it things that powerful. have to go wrong at the exact same moment for that gun to discharge itself without something or somebody pushing the trigger. So, 
Yeah, and I think that that's the takeaway, right? As 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 modern gun owners, the takeaway is guns are, are the standard I hold a gun to is that the trigger doesn't depress unless an object depresses it, right? And so, and and that's pretty much what industry standard testing is meant to confirm. Though obviously we've seen some some exceptions where extreme whatever testing environments has has caused that not to be the case. But if, if the trigger doesn't doesn't depress without an object pushing it backwards. Then it really becomes it's left to me. I become the safety, right? The the gun is made to specs, and now I have to manage the gun in a way that that, that prevents anything from pushing the trigger to the rear when I don't want it getting pushed to the rear. So anyway, it I, I just think it's a good reminder that even even if he'd been using a holster designed for the P320, this incident probably could still have happened if you get the wrong object in the wrong spot at the wrong time, when you're shoving that gun back into the holster. Yes. Yes. Which is, which is a essentially a user error type sort of thing. Like it's incumbent upon us to verify the condition of our equipment, the condition of our firearm, the condition of our holster, and make sure that things are still compatible when we are putting the gun in holster. Awesome. That's uh, a wrap of our stories. Uh, we are probably a little bit over time, but uh, Jacob, why don't you give us your gear review? So here we are on to our gear reviews portion of the show. Uh, and I'll just point out that Matthew and I will do the weekly podcast prize giveaway uh, in today's later episode. So Matthew, what's your gear review today? I'm Jacob. Oh, sorry, Jacob. Let's talk about Matthew later, but yes. <laughs> So today, my gear review is the Ready Up Gear 16340 USB rechargeable batteries. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's got a high performance flashlight is is used to the idea that they have to buy expensive batteries. It's kind of a, a crappy part of life. Uh, but in order to get really bright lights, you have to put a lot of electric current and flow into said light bulb. And in order to put lots of electric flow into said light bulb, you have to use a battery that's expensive. Uh, so traditionally, most of us are used to to using CR123A batteries or 18650 batteries. They're just kind of the standard battery for most, most flashlights because the CR123A puts out three volts from a single battery, which is double that of like a double A or a triple A, right? Those are 1.5 volts. And so they're very common, especially in smaller uh, tactical flashlights, uh, CR123A batteries. But CR123A batteries are not cheap. Um, in fact, I just did a quick Google search and like some, if you're going and buying just like a two pack from, you know, Energizers or Duracells, you know, you're probably paying a little more than $2 a battery. That gives you some context. I'm sure you can do better than that if you go on Amazon and buy the Amazon brand and get 50 of them at a time. But oh, they're not cheap the, batteries. The deal, okay, Amazon. A dozen Surefire batteries, which are great. Um, a buck or buck and a half or something each. It's about the best deal you can find, frankly, for a quality CR123. Yeah, so there you go. So the Surefire, I, th- I thought it was a 10-pack on Amazon. But anyway, the point mm-hmm. is it's not, they're not cheap batteries. Even when you get a really good deal on a quality battery, you're still paying more than a buck a pop, probably at least a buck fifty a pop. And it just, I mean, I know a dollar fifty is not a lot, Riley, but it sucks. It just, it's like, man, double A's and triple A's, which are so prevalent in our world are so cheap. And so every time you have to replace those dang CR123 A's, it's like, this blows. But uh, so anyway, I'm a big fan of the 16340. The 16340 is 
the number vernacular used to describe a battery that is the same size uh, and similar to and, and is a replacement for a CR123A, but it's rechargeable. So 16340 is is just who knows the battery gods decided that's what we were going to call them. Uh, but this particular 16340 from Ready Up Gear is USB rechargeable. And so it has a micro USB charging port on the battery itself. So I just plug it in and it has a little indicator light. It's red when it's charging and it's blue when it's done being charged and good to go. I stick it in the, the flashlight and I'm set and they're sold in two packs, which I think is important because I think, you know, you, you can charge one while the other one's in use and uh, you swap it out every couple of days or whatever. And you're good. Now the other, the other advantage of a 16340, by the way, is this, 16340s put out 3.7 volts. So not only are you getting something that's rechargeable, you're not spending a crap ton of money on it, uh, but also advantageously, uh, you also um, you also get higher output. So you're getting a brighter light. So if you check most flashlight um, specs, you traditionally you'll see you know CR if if you're using it with the CR one two one two three A this is the lumens if you use it with the sixteen three forty this is the lumens and it's always a higher number you're getting a brighter light when you use it with the sixteen three forty because it's more voltage output three point seven volts instead of three volts so I'm a big fan of the ready up gear uh, batteries now all that is what I knew and then the other day you and I were chatting and you said and I I won't make I won't name names but you told me that you had been using a competing product a rechargeable 16340 battery from a different company whose name I won't name. And you were surprised how few cycles you got from it before you had to discharge it and replace it. And now over the last couple of months, you've been using the ready up gear ones and you say that you're like, it, they've yet to fail you. You've yet to have to replace them. You're getting tons of re- recharge cycles from them. And and I thought, you know, you, you, you would use yours way more than I do. Uh, so I just thought that was another testament to the product, and I'm feeling really warm and fuzzy with the 16340s. Um, that said, and I, I'm seeing a comment here on from someone on YouTube, and it is worth saying this out loud, that it's you should confirm that the flashlight you're using will allow that you replace your CR123A with the 16340. Obviously, it does have a higher voltage output, so not all flashlights are going to allow you to replace or, or substitute the CR123A with the 16340, but most do. I, I don't all of all of mine that I've checked allow for it and give me more lumens, more brightness. So, readyupgear.com, the 16340 two pack of USB rechargeables. I'm a fan. Yeah. Uh, I held up there for the camera a moment ago, um, and I was covering up the name of the brand um, of the uh, competing product. And I've bought several of these over the years, have used them, and I have three dead ones sitting on my desk right now. I have I have sent them back and and, and on a warranty exchange uh, twice, and they they keep dying. All right, um, and, and and by that they they stop. Uh, recharging that's that's the failure so the like i get i'm I'm sure the battery cell itself will pro- continue to provide many cycles of use but something in the circuitry of the of the recharging circuit breaks and they just stop being able to be recharged and so um yeah i i i'll just say as much it's not like i have hundreds and hundreds of cycles of our ready up gear uh, 16340 batteries, but I have enough cycles on them 
to compare them with a competing brand's product that has failed in some cases in as soon as about 10 cycles. So anyway, um, all right, here's my product I'm reviewing today. And I'm pretty excited about this product, partly because I had to wait some number of months to get it. But now that they arrived and I believe they have them in stock or they are taking more pre-orders, but they are getting them restocked much more quickly than the first version. And what that is, is the press check assault gloves from SKD Tactical. Uh, these are also, they, they are a version of the pig, uh, what is it? Pig full dexterity tactical glove, I think is what they're called. Uh, but these are branded in, in, and designed with input from Chuck Pressburg, uh, a friend of mine who was in the unit, Delta Force. Uh, and he's a man that doesn't like gloves, but has been in situations where he's had to wear gloves. And so basically these are gloves designed to be, if you hate gloves, but you got to wear gloves, these might be acceptable to use. The idea is that they're extremely flexible. They allow for excellent dexterity in the hands and the fingers. Uh, that is absolutely true. I have done some dry fire this week with these on and coming from another brand, another type of glove in the past that I was a huge fan of, but they were discontinued. And I just never found another glove that I liked as well as that older style and brand that I used. Uh, these are exceptional. In fact, I think they're better than my previous uh, favorite gloves as far as like they are they are great they have again great dexterity articulation where they need it uh, little details that I think really matter one big thing I've complained about with uh, other types of gloves is the gloves that have the you know the strap that you use to actually close and secure them or tighten them down around the wrist I hate gloves for shooting purposes where that that wrist portion of the glove extends further down and then you wrap this this velcro thing and you close it tight and it, it actually affected articulation of the wrist which can be critical when you're shooting a gun right with a pistol also with a carbine rifle you might be in some shooting positions even where the articulation is such of your wrist and your hand that that extra material and that 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 clasp if you will that securing velcro would actually impede on my articulation of the wrist. It's just, I mean, you could get it done, but it was uncomfortable. It created a tightness where it didn't need to be. These are only as long as they need to be. They cover the hand. They don't go, they don't extend beyond the wrist. So my wrist is exposed to where it is able to fully articulate. Um, they're not intended to be cold weather gloves. These are just a standard glove. They're obviously going to take the bite off of, uh, cooler temperatures. Um, but they seem well-made. The seams look well-stitched. They've got extra material where they where they need it. They got some of the sticky material in the palm for extra grip where you, where you really want it in the palm. And again, the trigger finger is just you know nicely articulated and it's not overly large. So again, I've done some dry fire work this week to the tune of probably 200 or so practice draws, all with gloves and also reloads. So grabbing spare mags and all that with with gloves and my manipulations are fantastic even with these on so i would say that my my part times in in dry fire with draws and with reloads 
are maybe 0.1 or 0.2 seconds slower. And that's actually pretty, well, on the draw, probably less so. And that's pretty significant for me. So the ability to still function at a high level, uh, even while you're wearing gloves that tend to kind of get in the way and slow things down a little bit, it's pretty cool. So the press check assault gloves from SKD Tactical and also I think it's 30% of the proceeds from the sales of these go to a nonprofit organization called Warrior's Heart, which is an organization uh, to help uh, people overcome substance abuse. And they do fantastic work. I did a little bit of research on them and they're awesome. So I had to pre-order those things like last August or September. No, probably about July or August. And they finally showed up. Uh, this was their first batch, and now they're. I, it sounds like they're going to have a lot more, you know, on the way and go, you know, kind of keep that 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 flow moving, and they're selling very quickly. So, very excited about these new gloves. Well, I'm disappointed you got the right size because my last pair of new shooting gloves came when you bought the wrong size gloves, and you had to give them to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's always a concern. I did follow the sizing chart on the SKD Tacticals website, and fortunately, it worked. It worked well. I would say, so here's, here's my challenge. I have kind of fat palms, but short fingers. Uh, and so that creates a unique glove size challenge because a lot of times they have you measure the length from like your wrist to your tip of your middle finger. And then they'll have you weigh or, or measure the, uh, the width of your palm or the circumference of your palm. And so I did that. And, and so I got what I expected. And that is that the length of my hand to the tip of my finger is it would would lend you to think I need a, a smaller size, um, but the circumference of my palm indicates the next size up. I kind of am in between a large and an extra large, and I was a little nervous going with the large, but based on what I could see from the sizing chart, seemed like I should go with the large, and I'm glad I did. I think the extra large probably would have been good in the palm area, but would have been I would had I would have had extra material in the length of the fingers, and that would have hindered me in my dexterity. That's SDK. That's KD. Okay. Uh, Sierra Kilo Delta Tactical. Tactical. Got it. Thank All you. right. So there you go. That's my review. And that brings us to the end of another fine episode. Jacob, thanks for being a part of this one with me. <laughs> and so, guys, we're going to let you go. And a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. <laughs>